Well, the first hatchery was built back in 1921. Wow. And I would say that, um, uh, you know, the reason behind the need for these hatcheries was more to replenish the fish that were in lakes and streams after settlement days. And, you know, these first populations of fish, they were referred to as black spotted trout, which we believe was a Rio Grande cutthroat. Hello, New Mexico. James Pittman here with the New Mexico Wildlife Podcast. Well, the hunting seasons are behind us, and it's around this time of year that folks start thinking hard about fishing again. And what better way to kick that off than to learn a little bit about New Mexico's hatchery system? And to help teach us about this program is the Assistant Chief of Fisheries overseeing hatchery operations, Roddy Gallegos. Roddy, thanks for being here today. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Well, Roddy, tell us a little bit about yourself. Are you originally from New Mexico? Uh, Yes, I was actually born in Santa Rosa, New Mexico, and I pretty much lived there till I was about 10 years old. Then our family moved to uh, Glenwood, New Mexico. My stepfather was chosen to take over a manager position there at the Glenwood Hatchery. Lived there for about uh, two years until he was, uh, until he took over as a hatchery manager at Los Ojos. So at that point, we moved to Tierra Maria. I lived in Tierra Maria for the most part. Uh, I spent most of my adolescent years, remaining years there, and I graduated from from that high school, which is Escalante High School. Um, yeah, so my, my roots are, are kind of spread out everywhere more i think here in santa rosa because this is where most of my family is from but you know as long as i lived in Tierra maria i really um fell in love with that community and i feel like um i have roots there as well wow and a really strong connection to the state hatcheries from an early age then oh yes yes we uh uh, like I mentioned, we lived on hatcheries, or I have lived on hatcheries for uh, most of my life since I was uh, 10 years old, starting at Glenwood. Wow. Wow. And when um, when did you get on with the department? How long have you been on with, with Game and Fish? So I, I began working with the department back in 1981, and uh, I've been working with for the department uh, for about 39 years now. Wow. Yeah. Wow. All of that related to hatcheries? Yes. All of it related to hatcheries. Wow. Wow. Well, tell us a little bit about, I guess, your progression in your career with the department and uh, how you got to your current job as the assistant chief overseeing the hatcheries. Well, like I mentioned, I began my career in um, November of 1981. And I started as a fish culturist at Seven Springs Hatchery. I worked there for approximately a year and a half. And then I accepted a lateral transfer uh, to Los Ojos Hatchery. Um, And so in the same capacity, I was a fish culturist one there. Uh, After a few years there as a culturist one, uh, I promoted into an assistant manager position. And I held that position at Los Ojos uh, till about 1989, 
when I was promoted to um, a manager position at Lisboa Springs Hatchery. So I started as a manager back in 1989 there at Lisboa. And um, I stayed at Lisboa as manager for approximately 12 years and decided to request a lateral transfer to Rock Lake Hatchery in Santa Rosa when that position came open. So I, I did, I, I was chosen for that position and um, became manager at Rock Lake about 12 years from then. So I stayed as manager at Rock Lake till about 2008. And in 2008, I was promoted to assistant chief of fisheries over hatcheries. And I've been in that position since. Wow, that's uh, that's quite a career. Oh yes, yeah, and and, and it's a great career. I lo- I love the job. Well, tell us a little bit about your your current position as the assistant chief and what um, some of the day to day tasks are in that job. Okay, uh, probably a good portion of my time is spent corresponding with managers, uh, discussing operations and fish culture methods. Um, I do spend a lot of time tracking and monitoring fish inventories statewide within our hatcheries. The reason I monitor those is so that I'm comfortable with those inventories and uh, our ability to meet the schedules uh, for stocking that are requested by our sport fish and native fish biologists. I also deal with a lot of um, uh, out-of-state suppliers uh, from other hatcheries, federal and state, that provide us, um, you know, walleye eggs, uh, kokanee eggs. Um, we also purchase, I'm also in charge of ensuring that we are purchasing catfish for our big summer big uh, catfish program. Uh, in addition to that, I work closely with engineers and contractors on large projects for hatcheries, you know, includes things like providing them scope of work and approving designs and specs. Also work closely with the compliance specialists um, because our hatcheries uh, have to ensure that we're following the guidelines uh, as as defined within the Clean Water Act and the Environment Department issues us a water discharge permit that requires, requires us to do some sampling and and provide reports and data. You you had mentioned uh, supervision. How many people uh, work with our hatcheries across the state? So we have 40, um, I think just a little over 40 employees within the statewide system. Wow. So yeah, it's a, it's a pretty large group of individuals. Yeah, sounds like. Sounds like between the staff on hand and, and all the tasks that you oversee, you've, you've got your hands full. Yeah. Oh, yes. There's never a, a dull moment. I, you know, there's always, and, and, you know, that's one of the reasons that I really like the job is that um, it's, it's always, there's always something new and it, it it's just a very good job. It, it, it's one of those positions that, um, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, just, I think a lot of people would love to have, it's, it's a beautiful, it's a great position. Yeah. Yeah, sounds like it. Well, well, before we take a deep dive into the hatchery system, I'm kind of going off on a side note here, but it's actually really cool to have you talking on the podcast. You, you, you've actually been in every single episode that we've had so far because 
you're the one that's playing the guitar in our intro and our exit music and and actually originally created uh that music which i think is 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 really impressive so tell us a, a little bit about that before we dive more into hatcheries um how long have you been playing guitar uh so i i began playing guitar uh when i was a freshman in high school so probably around 1978 or so um since then i you know been been in a few bands um and i did also play piano piano and bass guitar wow. rhythm and bands i mean um yeah for the most part uh, i played with some pretty popular groups back in the day and um anymore though i, I just can't handle <laughs> it's just too hard to rebound after after gigs i tell you <laughs> well tell us a little bit about that about the different bands that you played with well, we started a, a group back in Los Ojos when I was there. Uh, the group was called Image, and we were around for a little while. We played a little bit of Spanish and some country and rock. And then I started playing with a group called Perfect Stranger, and I was with them for maybe 12 years or so. And left them and went with a group called the Wild Country. And they were out of Vegas when I moved to Pecos and currently just uh and you know those groups we played a lot of venues we we were averaging probably what i would say i don't know 10 to 15 nights a month wow yeah it was you know it was it was quite intense um now i just have a little group and and you know we we play maybe well i do play with a slow burn and every once in a while which is danny duran but um our own group is just a group of three or four guys and maybe once or twice a month in just smaller venues. Very cool. Very cool. Wow. You've been in bands and, and even some TV. I understand that you were on a, on an episode of, uh, of dirty jobs. Yeah. I believe I was back in, I want to say 2010. We had, um, we had the dirty jobs, um, uh, come down and they actually did some sh shot some footage of our walleye spawn there at uh, Santa Rosa Lake and after they uh, shot that footage they came to the hatchery and continued shooting footage of um, the process that we use to temper and and enumerate these eggs and um, and set them in our tanks and so yeah it was really interesting I uh, you know, it, it was definitely something, something new for me and definitely interesting for sure. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. But, well, between TV and the bands, I feel like we've got a, a celebrity on the show. Mm, well, uh, don't really know what to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's dive back into the, the hatchery program and, and the background and some of the history there. So, how many state-run hatcheries are there in New Mexico, and roughly where where are they located? Um, so there's six state hatcheries in our in our state right now. Um, there's currently uh, I don't know. I'll go through each one and just give like a brief description as far as their location. Glenwood Hatchery. It's on Cat Catwalk Road in Glenwood, New Mexico. Um, Lisboa Springs Hatchery, 
that's north of the village of Pecos, and it's along State Highway 63. Um, the Los Ojos Hatchery, uh, that's about 12 miles south of Chama, New Mexico. The Red River Hatchery is located about seven miles south of the village of Cuesta. Uh, Rock Lake Hatchery, Rock Lake Hatchery is located about two miles west of Santa Rosa, New Mexico, and it's off River Road. And this hatchery is our most unique because it's cold and warm, cool water production. The uh, Seven Springs Hatchery is located about 22 miles north of Seven Springs, and that is on uh, State Road 126. So that's that's basically their locations. Yeah, kind of spread out all over. They are. They are definitely spread out all over. So how long has the hatchery program been around, and, and why why was it originally established? You know, um, it... The first hatchery was built, which was Lisboa, back in 1921. Wow. And I would say that, um, you know, anything that I've ever read, uh, you know, the reason behind the need for these hatcheries was more to replenish the um, the stocks, you know, the lots of fish that were in lakes and streams after settlement days. They, you know, the, the settlement itself pretty much... Um, had an impact on on those fisheries and you know these first first uh what i've also read is that these first populations of fish they were referred to as black spotted trout which we believe was the rio grande cutthroat um which is native to new mexico uh, those were that was the initial targeted species that was uh, cultured and also stocked Outside of Lisboa Springs, we believe that the first introductions, you know, the first stockings occurred uh, prior to 1921, and they were brought in by train. Um, wow. I don't really know where they came from uh, exactly, but, but they were brought in from other states, probably Colorado, maybe some other states, you know, up in the West. But, yeah, and so, you know, the initial purpose, and, and still to this day, the main purpose is to supplement those fish stocks with the rainbow trout program. It's more to uh, create that recreational type fishery that um, these, you know, a lot of anglers within New Mexico and even out of state um, seem to um, seem to really cherish here in our state. Like I said, Las Boas was built back in 1921 and it currently is the oldest fish hatchery we have. Um, then after that, we had Los Ojos, 1932, uh, Seven Springs back in uh, 1936, Glenwood in 1938. And the last one that was built was Rock Lake, and that was built back in 1964. Um, a lot of these hatcheries initially were uh, constructed under the direction of the Works Progress Administration, the WPA projects. Um, so yeah, they they've been around for a while, and I, they they served their purpose back then. And they continue to do the same. Wow, that's an amazing history that it stretches all the way back to the 1920s, and it sounds like even before when there were fish being brought in by train. So so knowing that these properties have have been around a long time, when you go to these locations, do they 
do they look like they did back then or have there been a lot of uh, renovations and updates uh, to the properties and the and the program through time so depending on the hatchery that you actually visit you you will probably see uh, some historic buildings that are being that are still being utilized or uh, have been renovated but they have maintained that external facade kind of um, you know for that historic facade Every hatchery with the exception of, let me think here. Now, I'll just look at Glenwood, for instance. Um, Glenwood basically has a lot of the old historic buildings, even even the dwellings, the, the, the uh, facilities that are provided for department uh, employees, you know, that are housed in. Those facilities are still the, um, the, first, the first structures. They're the same structures that were there back in the day. And, you know, we basically have just renovated pieces of them uh, where we just replace like windows, doors, or anything like that. But the main structure itself, those have remained in their sound. Um, I would say for the most part, depend, like I said, depending on the facility, you're probably going to still see some remnants of the historic structures. But since swirling disease, um, hit our hatcheries back in 1999 um, there have been quite a few renovations that were done to combat that disease and what you may find when you go to hatcheries you're going to find a lot of the old um, raceways um, that now are completely enclosed with metal enclosures um, and a lot of those enclosures that you find at these facilities uh, were constructed to try to mitigate uh, and break the cycle of whirling disease. So back when we, we did actually uh, find whirling disease in our facilities, um, the positive lots that we found, they were destroyed. And the water supply itself was disinfected. And like I said, these culture tanks were covered with enclosures. If you look at the whirling disease cycle, it requires hosts to complete the cycle. So if you can interrupt that and remove any piece, any element of that cycle, then you can break break that cycle and eliminate the disease. So, you know, we have tube effects. Tube effects is one of the elements within that cycle. And then there's the spore, the, the spore that your dead host actually um has and can remain in your water column. These spores actually can be transmitted or transferred to the water column by waterfowl, predators, anything like that. So the enclosures were basically erected to uh, remove that vector of disease transmission by removing the predators. And um, we've been successful. The um, the last enclosure was erected back in back at Los Ojos in 2011, and since then um, production numbers have com continued to increase statewide, and um, and uh, I think we're we're definitely back back in the ball game. In 1999, when Dil when Harlan disease hit, it really hit hatcheries hard, but we're definitely producing more fish now than we've ever produced in the past.
Wow. Wow. Well, well, knowing that, knowing that you're producing more fish than, than you ever have, knowing that there were, you know, a lot of updates and upgrades that needed to happen. You had mentioned, you know, there's over 40 employees uh, in the program statewide, but what about a specific hatchery? How many people uh, work at any given individual hatchery and, and kind of what are some of their um, job duties? Okay. Yeah. So I'll, I'll go through um, our org chart and just kind of give you an idea um, obviously, it's going to depend on the size of the facility. So, I mean, Glenwood, for instance, that's a smaller facility, um, and that that facility employs, you know, one manager, one assistant manager, and one fish culturist, which is an entry level position. Um, Lisboa, for instance, they have one manager, one assistant manager, and four culturists because they're a little lar- larger. Um, Los Ojos has got one manager, two assistant managers, and four culturists. Um, Red River, which is one of our larger facilities, uh, you know, they have one manager, they have two assistant managers, and and five culturists. Uh, Seven Springs, our Rio Grande Cutthroat facility, it um, it's a smaller facility, and it has one manager, one assistant manager, and one culturist. Rock Lake is the hatchery that is a bit unique where it, where it basically raises both warm and cold water species of fish. And they have one manager, two assistant managers, and three culturists. So that gives you an idea of kind of the structure within, you know, each, each hatchery. Um, a typical day, depending on, you know, the assignments, obviously, that these guys are um, having to complete that day. It could involve someone, you know, basically feeding fish, uh, determining feed conversions, uh, um, you know, picking mortalities, um, cleaning raceways. Uh, It could also involve um, individuals loading fish and taking them out to lakes and and streams uh, to be planted. Uh, we have wild spawns that occur that um, our folks actually oversee or um, or participate with, like the walleye spawn um, or the kokanee spawn. They also assist with, you know, other projects like the Rio Grande uh, cutthroat restoration or recovery program. You know, they'll they'll do some non-native removal of fish and then there'll be some plantings up in different tributaries they assist with those types of projects as well there's a whole gamut of different things that uh, these guys can participate in Um, but for the most part that if if they're on the facility they're going to be doing those type of types of maintenance type facility um, tasks or projects and uh, also maintaining, you know, whatever they need to do to maintain inventories of fish. Uh, they may be setting eggs. Uh, you know, we, we buy fish eggs from Trout Lodge uh, as one of our suppliers. And what we buy are all-female triploid uh, eggs. And, you know, that's mainly so that we can try to reduce hybridation of uh, non-native to native fish in any waterway. Um, and so... These guys will, you know, they'll receive eggs like Red River, for instance. They receive 
I believe it's 200,000 eggs every month. Wow. And they, when they receive those eggs, there's a process that requires them to basically look at each egg tray, determine its temperature, and then acclimate um, those eggs uh, to the uh, water temperature um, of the hatchery source. And uh, then we go into a disinfecting piece where we basically treat those eggs as they come in with a betadine solution so that you know, we're killing any vectors for disease. Um, and then they're set in incubator trays and left there uh, until they basically hatch and swim up. And, uh, and then they're, they're dropped into different uh, fry, what we refer to as early fry ponds or troughs within the hatch building. And they're maintained there until they're large enough to basically um, be placed outdoors in larger raceways. But that whole process requires, you know, an exorbitant amount of of manpower and, and time and effort, especially when you're dealing with a hatchery as large as Red River. Well, two follow-up questions there. The first being, what are the ages of these of these trout when they when they leave the hatchery when they're stocked? And then you had also mentioned uh, triploid, and uh, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit more about what that is. Okay, so the age of a fish when it leaves the hatchery uh, is really dependent on the uh, water temperature um, uh, of that water resource that the hatchery is raising those fish in. So the warmer the water temperature, the faster the growth is basically what happens. You have an increased metabolism. So uh, we could look at a hatchery, say, say like Red River. Uh, Red River will probably produce a 10-inch rainbow trout from egg um, in about 12 months. Um, and so, you know, it, it, that's that's pretty fast. They're averaging about, I say, one one inch a month at that point. Wow. Or a little bit, a little bit less. The growth actually increases. Um, as after they've hit swim up, because there's there's a, a time in within that life cycle where they're they're set as eggs, and then they're basically placed. You know, they have an egg sac, but but they're not actually swimming up and consuming feed. So you know that that amount of time is normally about a month and a half. So, but if you can if you can put out a ten inch fish in 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 twelve months, that's that's pretty good, and and that's about what it takes Red River to do. Wow. Now, these uh, all-female triploid eggs, um, we basically purchase from a private supplier, um, and, you know, we have to go through the process of putting it out to bid and, and getting it awarded through them. Uh, they use a process. I think there's two different types of process. It's either a, a pressure process where they can basically force um, an egg to become normally under a, a normal uh, diploid, you're going to have two chromosomes. The processes that they use basically uh, split a chromosome they, to where the uh, the fish now has three chromosomes, so they cannot reproduce. There's also a process of converting them to all female, and that um, I believe. 
entails a uh, what they're doing is they're exposing them to male hormones over time and then feeding them a ration of those male hormones. There's a, a generation, I think it takes two or three generations of that process uh, to eventually get to that all-female um, triploid egg. And so the reason that we purchase these eggs is, like I mentioned, we we definitely want to um, make sure that we are not compromising any of our native populations of fish, especially in in recovery waters. And we want, you know, this is just another piece of that assurance where we we take the extra effort to acquire these eggs and we we provide the additional budget because they are a little bit more expensive to buy these eggs to have that additional assurance that, you know, it's it's unlikely that if an all-female triploid rainbow trout met up with a Rio Grande cutthroat uh, out there in the you know, in, in a stream or lake, that they would reproduce, and 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 so that's our main goal is to basically um, reduce that likelihood. So it's really done to protect the native fish, then. It is. Mm-hmm. That's very cool. It just sounds like a, a really cool job. So if, if there are people that are listening, they're like, man, that'd be something I would like to do. Um, kind of what is the background or the degree that you would need to get a job at a hatchery? So the entry-level positions, um, the fish culturist positions, entry-level, they, they require a combined um, amount of, or experience level that either includes education or experience. And so uh, along the educational component, you're looking at an associate's degree and, you know, a two-year degree in aquaculture or any related type uh, animal husbandry type field um, and or experience with, you know, I believe the experience is at least two years experience in um, any type of animal husbandry, aquaculture related field. There are equivalencies built into that entry level position, which means that if you only have the educational component up to four years, uh, then you would still qualify because you meet the educational component of two years and then you have two additional years um, in the, you know, in an, in an example where you have a bachelor's, for instance, it's a four-year degree, uh, combined total years of four years, uh, you meet both requirements because of the equivalency. System manager, there's a requirement uh, for a combined total of like five years, I believe. Um, so that adds another year to the requirement as far as the experience side goes. And on the manager side, there's a requirement for at least a combined total of eight years of experience. I believe it's eight years. So you could have, uh, you know, uh, an associate's in a related field or a, a bachelor's. Uh, but you would still need to have at least um, four to five years of hands-on experience. Um, and when we look at managers and assistant managers, obviously we want to try to um, hire individuals in those positions that have worked in hatcheries uh, 
or have raised fish, you know, for for um, a fair amount of time against the ex experience component. So um, that is kind of what's required in a nutshell for individuals that are interested in applying for these types of positions. Yeah, it sounds like a great way to start out and, and build your way up throughout your career. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, awesome. Well, well, knowing that that we have all of these hatcheries around the state and they, they all have staff that are working there. They all have purchase needs and, and facilities needs. Where did the, where does the funding come for the, the hatchery programs that, that we have in the state? So initially the funding is coming from the game protection fund, but we do operate under a grant that is issued through the Sport Fish Restoration Act. And through that grant, um, hatchery expenditures, anything related to hatcheries, uh, we are reimbursed up to 75% of this. So um, that, that Sport Fish Restoration Act, it's, it's a 10% federal excise tax on a purchase of fishing equipment and, and motorboat fuels. Um, and basically what happens is every year um, uh, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife will look at what has been brought in through that, that uh, tax. And then there's a formula that they use to determine how much money each state will get. And so we've been pretty fortunate. I mean, I believe we spend a little over $3 million dollars. Uh, to run our hatcheries um, yearly, and um, and we we do get you know like I said a seventy five percent reimbursement on that. So so it's really, in a sense, paid for by the anglers themselves. Yes, sir. Yeah, that's awesome. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Well, well, now knowing you know where the funding comes from, where these facilities are. I know what the job process is. We've talked a little bit about that there there are there's at least one hatchery that does both warm and cold water species. We've talked a little bit about rainbow trout. What are the different species of fish that are that are raised in the state's hatchery system? So what I'll do is I'll go through each facility and kind of give you a breakdown of what they produce. Okay. And um and if there's anything as far as changes to that that we expect in the future. And I'm going to start with Glenwood Hatchery. And Glenwood Hatchery, uh, basically, they have been, they, they raise nothing right now as it stands. They're raising um, all-female triploid rainbow trout. They received their last shipment, I believe, four eggs back in um, 2019. So they have a small remaining population of, of, of those trout on, on the facility. Uh, that hatchery is getting ready to go under some, some rebuilding, some renovations, and after that renovation, they will be raising uh, exclusively Gila trout. Okay. Um, so for, for that hatchery, um, that particular hatchery beginning the end of the year when we expect this, project will be completed um, 
they will be raising nothing but Gila trout. They have raised a few Gila trout uh, in past years um, through eggs that were received from Mora National Fish Hatchery and also, yeah, and basically raising those up. But they were utilizing those fish for recreational stockings only, not as part of recovery. Um, Lisboa Springs, they raise nothing but um, all-female triploid rainbow trout. Um, this year, we expect that we may try to utilize some of their space to raise some pecos lineages or a pecos strain of the Rio Grande cutthroat trout. Again, that would be for recreational purposes only, but uh, we are looking at that um, as being uh, something that we may have them do this year. Um, Los Ojos Hatchery, they raise um, basically all-female triploid rainbow trout, but they also raise kokanee salmon, and, and this hatchery in particular is in charge of the wild spawn that normally occurs there at Heron Reservoir for kokanee. They bring those eggs in, and then they raise them up to um, fingerling, I mean to uh, fry fingerling sizes, and then they, they stock those out into, you know, the, the lakes that are, that are on the schedule to, to receive these fry from the sport fish folks. Red River. Red River is producing nothing but um, all-female triploid rainbow trout right now. But again, they may be, uh, they are planning to look at possibly raising a small population of the uh, Rio Grande cutthroat lineage or strain of Rio Grande cutthroat um, within their facility this year. And uh, those stocks will be utilized for uh, recreational stocking purposes. Um, Rock Lake. So Rock Lake Hatchery is, like I mentioned, a, a bit unique. They raise all-female triploid rainbow trout in their cold water section. Um, and it's a very good fishery for that during the wintertime because their water temperatures drop uh, down to a more optimal range for for rainbow trout. But during the summertime, they have, uh, I think it's something like 21 one-acre ponds, something like that, um, that they raise largemouth bass, they, mainly largemouth bass, they, they've converted to raising them solely now. So they're maintaining a largemouth bass broodstock population and then they're conducting a, a spawn within their facility for largemouth bass and then stocking out those fry. They also bring in a few fathead minnows. Um, prior to that, uh, before we decided to convert to just largemouth bass production, they were they were raising um, some walleye, catfish, bluegill, and a few tiger muskie in their ponds. They also, um, they still do bring in walleye eggs from, from the wild spawn that normally occurs during the springtime. And they hatch those, those eggs and, and stock those fry out directly from the hatchery. They normally don't put them, they've discontinued uh, placing them in their one acre ponds. Um, and so 
so they do bring in in walleye, and, and we are geared up to actually have a walleye spawn this year. So it's it's going to be interesting to see what we can get out there. But yeah, they they basically are a cold, cool, and warm water uh, hatchery producer. Seven Springs is the last one I have on here, and Seven Springs is exclusively producing nothing but Rio Grande cutthroat trout. This year, um, we're asking them to look at um, what changes to infrastructure will need to occur so that they can produce both lineages of the PECO strain and also the Rio Grande strain of cutthroat trout at the same facility. So that's something that they're working towards. Right now, they are currently only producing the Rio Grande cutthroat um, lineage or strain. And um, we are hoping to get some PECO strain into that facility and start raising them for a, uh, we want to build up a brood stock for the PECO strain. And we're hoping to, to get some wild spawns done this year for that. Wow. So a lot of different species, warm water and cold water, and a lot of fish being produced throughout the state. So how often, knowing that on the fast end from egg to 10-inch trout is, is 12 months on the, on the fast end, how often are fish being taken from the hatcheries and being stocked out into the wild? So let's just look at the uh, rainbow trout program. Uh, that's probably easier to, to give give you an idea. So four of our six hatcheries um, are in areas where the majority of their stocking or their waters become most suitable for rainbow trout uh, during the is done during the summertime. So um, I mean, I'm talking like Los Ojos, Red River. Um, even up in Seven Springs, Seven Springs will haul their uh, catchable commitments for rainbow trout from other hatcheries to stock waters in their area. So those are those four hatcheries. The majority of their stocking is done um, during the summer times, and it may and it may start as early as um, April, and it may run as late. Their heavy stocking months may run into. September, latter part of September, maybe into October. Uh, those are those we refer to as the summer uh, stocking waters. A typical, I mean, we could look at Red River, and I would say that uh, you know a typical stocking month may require them to stock out uh, in something or you know around. Um, 20 to 30,000 fish a month. Wow. And, you know, maybe even higher during, during heavy stocking months. It may be, it, it could get as high as 50,000 fish. Wow. And these are fish that are 10 inch, 10 inches in length or larger. You know, in addition to that rainbow trout stocking program, we have an incentive program that uh, takes a sub portion of, of the population and grows them up to 15 inches in length or larger. So in addition to the 10 inch fish that they're stocking out for the summer uh, waters, they may be taking, you know, a, a hundred or up to 500 of these 15 inch fish as well to those waters. We also have what we call um, winter trout waters that we stock. 
the winter trout waters are more, you know, down south, like in the areas where Glenwood Hatchery is and maybe where uh, Santa Rosa Hatchery is. Um, and those those uh, stockings, they're, they're down in the hops, Roswell, Jowl, those areas mainly, uh, Rudoso, some of those waters. Um, there's a Rio Grande below Elephant Butte as well. Um, and these guys may start their stocking, their heavy months start in the middle of October, early part of November. In Rock Lake, it's not unheard of, unheard of for them to be stocking out 40,000, 50,000 fish a month during the uh, peak of those winter stocking months. So it's it's quite the undertaking, um, especially when they're they're stocking out, you know, those during those months and and during the peak of their stocking stocking uh, schedule. Yeah, that that's providing a lot of a lot of opportunity to our anglers. That's that is really amazing. Yeah, so you know, sixty percent of what these guys, well, approximately sixty percent of what these facilities are raising are are going to be ten inch and larger, and and that's for the put and take. We expect that we're putting them in there. Uh, you know, we're fairly confident that these anglers are taking them out relatively quickly. You know, within four to five days or so. We also have the other 40% where we stock fingerlings and subcatchables, and that those, those are stocked into what we refer to as put, grow, and take waters. And so they may be larger reservoirs like Navajo. Uh, they could be even the section of the quality section of the San Juan, where we expect that there's enough food base for them to uh, survive and grow. And so it, we choose to stock them at a smaller size knowing that uh, they have an opportunity and they have food available to basically grow into larger larger fish. It saves us a little bit of money and we still are able to uh, provide you know more larger fish to our anglers. Yeah, that is that is awesome. Well well knowing that these hatcheries are you know raising fish year round that they've got um, this historical aspect but yet they're they're modernized and that makes me really want to go see them. Are, are the hatcheries open to the public to, to see uh, the facilities and, and the daily operations? So um, currently, and, you know, they are pretty much closed to the public, and it's because of the COVID-19 restrictions that are in place. Um, when when those restrictions are relaxed and things get back to normal, yes, we do have hatcheries. Well, and so I'll, I'll back up a little bit there and, and mention that the we have a Pecos Watershed Educational Center at Santa Rosa Rock Lake that is remained open to the public, mainly because it's, it's not in the same footprint. There's a uh, barrier, which is the county road that separates the um, educational center from the actual hatchery itself. So we have a way to to close the facility where we culture fish to the public, but still allow them the ability to visit the visitor center or the educational center and walk. Uh, I think they have a scenic trail and then they have a duck blind that they, that they can use to see um, uh, waterfowl in some of our settling basins. So that's open. 
but for the most part, uh, we won't see any other hatcheries open to the public that have accommodations, facilities such as a visitor center um, available for, for the public and some type of a, you know, self-guided tour uh, that would allow them to see fish within uh, culture tanks. That probably won't happen until things get back to some level of normalcy um, and COVID restrictions are relaxed. So prior to the pandemic and, and the COVID-related restrictions, most hatcheries were open for the public to, to visit? Yeah, the only hatcheries that were closed um, to the public prior to COVID uh, were Los Ojos and um, Seven Springs. Uh, outside of that, all other hatcheries were open to the public. Um, Seven Springs uh, does have the kids pond uh, that is obviously closed now, but but uh, that was open prior to COVID. And that was quite the draw uh, for fishing. Um, Glenwood Pond uh, is open for fishing, but it, the hatchery itself, as far as the ability for people to tour the facility and look at any fish within the uh, culture tanks, that's closed. Is that um, one a kid's pond as well? No, that one's open to, to anyone. Okay. And um, are, are those really the only two, um, the Seven Springs and, and Glenwood, that have some sort of uh, fishing opportunity on site or, or nearby? Uh, those two, with the exception of Red River. Uh, Red River has a kid's pond um, that I, I, I'm not real sure whether it's open right now. The... The kids' pond itself, uh, it's not closed because of COVID. It was, and, and if it is closed, it's mainly because, or if it is closed, it's because we have a blockage in the water supply that comes off the source water. And so the um, the water within that pond is, is just not suitable. It's become compromised, um, and it can't maintain fish. So what I would recommend there is, you know, if individuals are interested in fishing that area, there's still the stream alongside the hatchery itself that is open. So there is still a fishing opportunity if you go down there and the pond is closed. Um, we have uh, recently done some stream restoration work that created more pools and more opportunities for fish to basically um, survive within that stretch of the Red River. So it's really a nice place to fish, and that, that Red River is stocked um, every week, I believe. Um, yeah, so, I, I mean, if they're really interested in fishing that pond, I would recommend that they call a hatchery and find out what the status is on that, that pond, whether or not they were unable to provide water back to it. But like I say, there's still the opportunity to fish um, in that area if the pond is not available. Okay, so a few opportunities now. And when the world gets back to normal after the, the pandemic and the COVID-related closures, sounds like even more opportunities available to to view the hatcheries, the processes, and, and actually some fishing opportunities as well. Yep. Mm -hmm. Awesome. 
Well, growing up around hatcheries and working around hatcheries and in hatcheries your entire career, do you have any advice or, or fishing tips or even knowledge of fish behavior that could help our state anglers be more successful? So I guess the, uh, the, main, the main thing that I focus on when I go fishing is I, I think the best time to go fishing, especially if you're targeting remnant populations of fish that you no know, naturally reproduce or, or have stayed in the system for a while, um, I like to fish during April and May. Basically what happens when you have uh, populations of fish that stay within these streams or lakes over time, uh, over the winter time, they they go into what we refer to as a dormant state where they re- basically don't really burn anything, uh, but they they burn enough to maintain maintain themselves. So what happens when you have uh, spring starting to roll around? You have a gradual increase in water temperature, and what that does is it increases their metabolism. And if you can get up into you know tributaries of the Pecos or I used to like to fish the Pecos quite a bit. Um, during that those months, a lot of those fish that have remained in, in those streams during the wintertime um, are starting to become very active and, and aggressively hungry. And, um, and that's, that to me is one of the funnest times to go out there because you can really um, have a lot of fun trying to sneak up on those pools, especially uh, in some of those tributaries that are really small, or even the Pecos River itself, and try to uh, to catch some fish. Then it's it's that's when it comes to salmonids, that's that's pretty much the uh, recommendation I have. Outside of obviously, you know, we, we do stock those areas pretty heavy. Um, you know, middle part of the week is probably a good time to go if if you just want to try to catch some rainbow. And then for warm water fish, you know, um, I really like to fish for walleye um, and some crappie. Uh, and in Santa Rosa Lake, when it's had water in it for for at least two or three consecutive years and a decent population of fish, that's one of my favorite places to go. And, and I'll basically just troll with, with a minnow or, um, or even worms and and if you can get into that lake or even uh, Conchas or Ute Lake during that time of year, a lot of times these fish are really active. And, and it, you know, they become a lot more aggressive as far as uh, their feeding behavior after the spawn has occurred, mainly because the spawn has weakened them and taken most of their energy. So that's a really good time to go out there and fish for those fish. And, and that's mm-hmm. mainly in the... In the spring months? Those are in the spring months, yeah. I I usually try to hit Santa Rosa Lake right around May or June. Uh, the latter part of the spring seems to be the best. Yeah, so that those are the tips that I would give individuals, you know, uh, outside of, like I said, just the normal stalkers. If you wanted to uh, fish for those, I probably the middle of the week is the best time to go. Awesome. Well, those are some good tips. Our whole conversation from the hatcheries to talking about fishing here at the end, uh, man, it makes me want to 
get out and go fishing. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> well, Roddy, I think that's about all we have time for today, but I, I really appreciate it. Thank you for joining us and teaching us a little bit about the hatchery system in New Mexico and, and the benefits that it provides to our anglers here in the state and, and also for that good guitar music that's going to see us out of here. Well, you're welcome, James. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks again. And thank you all for tuning in today. Uh, be sure and check out our other shows and the New Mexico Wildlife Online articles and the monthly e-newsletters. And get outside and enjoy all the outdoor recreation opportunities that New Mexico has to offer. See you next time.